Well, good morning, folks. It's good to be here with you in this place today and in the kingdom of God. And I want to welcome you to this first session of the Gould Lectures on Holiness. My name is Phil LaFountain. I teach in religion and philosophy. And uh, I'm excited about these next few days. The Gould Lectures on Holiness offer the Eastern Nazarene College community the opportunity to hear outstanding Wesleyan scholars discuss aspects of the Christian doctrine of holiness. Dr. J. Glenn Gould began the Gould Lectures in 1945 in memory of his parents, the Reverend and Mrs. John Gould. The inaugural lecture was published in a book entitled The Whole Council of God. The Reverend John Gould served Eastern Nazarene College from 1925 to 1928 as chairman of the Board of Trustees and business manager before being elected as district superintendent of the New England District of the Church of Nazarene in 1929. Mrs. Gould served as Dean of Women for the college during the same period. Dr. J. Glenn Gould was ordained in 1917 as a minister in the Church of the Nazarene and served churches in Haverhill and Cliftondale, uh, Massachusetts, Portland, Maine, Baltimore, Maryland, and Cleveland, Ohio. From 1940 to 1945, he served as editor-in-chief of the Church School's Publication Office for the Church of the Nazarene. In 1945, he accepted the pastorate of the Wollaston Church of the Nazarene and the chairmanship of the Department of Theology at Eastern Nazarene College, a position he held until his retirement in 1968. He also served as professor in the Department of Religion. Until his death in 1974, Dr. J. Glenn Gould remained the sponsor of the lecture series. It has brought to the campus of Eastern Nazarene College the most prominent lecturers and preachers in the doctrine of holiness. Following Dr. Gould's passing, his daughter and son-in-law, Winifred and the late Harold Jones, continued to sponsor the series in loving memory of grandparents, the Reverend and Mrs. John Gould, and parents, Dr. and Mrs. J. Glenn Gould. In addition, the college has been the beneficiary of support from the Gould family for establishing the Gould Library, originally located in Angel Hall and now relocated to a beautiful space on the second floor of the Nice Library. Eastern Nazarene College is honored, honored to present the Reverend Anthony Holloman as the guest lecturer for the Gould Lecture on Holiness uh, today uh, and on Friday. Reverend Holloman is the Academic Dean at European Nazarene College in Busingen, Germany and uh, he also is lecturer in church history and historical theology and pastoral ministry. The 2012 Gould Lectures on Holiness, delivered by Reverend Holloman, will explore the relationship between holiness and everyday life in the 21st century. These addresses will be delivered during the college chapel services at the uh, Wollaston Church of Nazarene, located here, of course, on the campus of ENC, and the services will be held as follows. So today, Wednesday, and Friday during chapel time, and also tomorrow, a colloquium in the Monroe Parlor at 3.30, uh, extended until 5 p.m., and I understand that you can get chapel credit for that as well. So please join us if you would. Reverend Holloman, as academic dean at European Nazarene College, has been involved in theological education at the, in the European context and has thought deeply about the changing European environment. Reverend Holloman has been a Nazarene pastor in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, an adjunct faculty member of EUNC, an extension coordinator before taking on the position of academic dean. His insight into the European context and the relationship between theology and the social context will be the primary context for his lectures. Would you offer him a warm welcome as he comes? Reverend Anthony Holloman, please. Thank you.
I thank you, Dr. LaFontan, for the invitation. And uh, I must say, I was pleasantly surprised and felt honored also looking at the long list of people who have spoken in this series. It's good to be back. I've been here in the Boston area and also on campus on various occasions throughout the years. It's good to reconnect to friends that I have here. And I've, I've used this invitation to try to organize and articulate some of my recent thinking on holiness in the European context, but also placed it in the context of the Old Testament prophecy. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, describes the task of the prophet as a person who challenges the self-deception of the people and who describes the real deathliness that hovers over them. He does that to encourage the people to accept the anguish as a door to new beginnings. And so I hope as a, a guest you will allow me to be engaged in criticism, to criticize in order to energize. I'd like to start with the probing question... Why holiness? Why holiness? Why is it so important for a denomination to position itself among all the other groups and holiness or all the other groups and churches, denominations as a holiness church? Why is that so important? My intention is not to undermine holiness, but to see the importance of a concept that I think has become too familiar for those who've been raised and work and, and go to holiness churches. We hear so much about becoming holy that we forget why we need to strive for that. Why should it be such a concern? I'm reminded of one of the great classics of the Disney movies, Finding Nemo. I guess you know what I'm talking about. One of the storylines in Finding Nemo are these fish in the aquarium in the, in the dentist's practice. They want to get out. And when finally they have succeeded and are in the big ocean, be it in separate plastic bags, one of them says, you know, now what? Now what? Getting out had become their goal. And once they realized that they were out there, they have accomplished their goal, but didn't know why they were so preoccupied with getting out. And I sometimes have the feeling that when holiness people talk about holiness, I sometimes want to say, now what? Or so what? Or why? Robert Mulholland in his book on spiritual formation describes the same kind of danger. He says, 
everything that God does, everything that God is doing or ever will do to conform our lives to the image of Christ is not that someday we'll be set in a display case in heaven as a trophy of grace. He says, no, God does that so that we become transformed as he stresses that for the sake of others. That means that we need to work on our own spirituality so that we become less of a problem to others, but instead become a blessing. I think he puts spiritual formation back on its place, not as the goal, but as the means. I think the stress on the importance of holiness runs the same danger that we, try to, we, we tend to confuse the means and the goal. And we talk a lot about it as if it's the goal, but it's only the means and we forget what the goal is. So in these two lectures, I would like to explore why holiness. I want to place it in a biblical context, and I'll be working with the book of Isaiah, especially chapters 5 and 6. We'll start with chapter 6. Today we'll go also back to 5, and on Friday we end up in chapter 6 again. Chapter 6, a well-known chapter in the book of Isaiah. In my Bible, the New American Standard Bible, it is divided into two portions. The first seven verses talks about Isaiah's vision and then Isaiah's commission. These are the two titles. Let me read to you the uh, first seven verses of chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah, or in the, in the year of the king's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one, one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled, and at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. It's a wonderful story probably we've heard sermons about this passage that deal with God's holiness, cleansing us from sin. But this is not the entire story. This is only the first part. And the best is still to come. So far it's only been an introduction. 
and many already have been so fully satisfied with this introduction and also led by the titles in the Bible that they say, okay, this is the passage, they close their Bible, say praise be to God, join in singing, join in singing a song of praise or holy, 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 and they say, isn't this wonderful? But do you know how the story continues? In verse 8, it says, Then, after all of this has happened, Then I heard the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then Isaiah is able to respond and say, Here I am. Send me. And then God continues talking about the mission that Isaiah has. All that has happened to Isaiah, the wonderful vision, the forgiveness, and, the, and everything that he had experienced enabled him to hear God speak. Before he was overwhelmed, full of awe, focused on himself, saying, oh, this is too much for me, I'm lost, this, I cannot endure it. He was full of anxiety, not able to listen. Not able to listen what God had to tell him. But it's only after he was touched by the fire of the coal and he heard these calming words of forgiveness that his pulse starts to lower, he starts to breathe normal again, and now he hears what God is speaking to him. He was able to move beyond his own anxiety, move beyond his, his self-centeredness, of what he was experiencing, what he was feeling, to focus on what God was trying to communicate to him. I think a lot of people who stop reading in verse 7 commit a severe sin. They close the Bible right at the moment when God starts to, to, to speak and when God starts to address us personally. They silence God with well-intended praises, thanking Him for what He has done, and God is saying, but I'm not finished yet. Or to put it in other words, the means have become the end. The experience of forgiveness, the experience of holiness that should have enabled the people to listen more carefully to God has become the end. And they think, okay, I've experienced it, this is it. They can tick it off and say, great. By stopping in verse 7, also in our personal lives, we do not let God reach His goal with us. So why holiness? It's not so that we can testify of a wonderful, miraculous experience of being cleansed and that we have a, a wonderful testimony to share in church. That's only the means. The preparation what God has to say to us and what he wants to do with us. We'll come back to this chapter 6 and especially the assignment of Isaiah, but in order to understand the context, we need to go back to chapter 5. Chapter 5 provides the, the background 
to understand what is happening to Isaiah. We'll not be reading chapter 5, but I'll be walking through it. Chapter 5 is, is a song. It's a song about a vineyard. The vineyard of the, the friend of Isaiah, the friend of the person communicating and singing this song. He says, my friend, he selected a good spot on a fertile hill, a lot of sunshine, and he wanted to build a vineyard. He did everything he could. Removed the stones, built a fence, selected the best vine plants, already prepared a, a big wine fat because he was expecting the best grapes to produce the best wine ever. But the vineyard never produced the good grapes that the owner was expecting. The text doesn't say it, but we can probably assume that he tried for several years. Well, maybe this year the harvest will be better. And he tried to do everything that was in <coughs> within his possibilities. But every year the same results. Useless grapes. In verse 3, the owner interrupts the person singing the song. And the, and, and the owner of the vineyard, who happens to be there, addresses the audience and says, Now listen, people. Listen. What would you do? What happened to the vineyard pretty much angered the owner. And he tells the audience, What would you do in my situation? Tell me. Am I to blame for anything of this? Is there something that I should have done differently? Did I neglect any of my responsibilities? Am I justified in expecting good grapes? The vineyard owner is so angry that he does not even wait on the response of his audience. He says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything anymore. He's not talking about selling the place, but he says, I'm just going to let it go and just not take care of it. And probably what will happen is the weeds will grow, the fence will get holes, the vines will become wild without any pruning. It will turn into a wilderness. And the audience may think, oh, this guy is really angry. Maybe he's a bit exaggerating. Or maybe even Isaiah, the singer of the song, could turn to the audience and say, well, what do you think? Is the owner exaggerating? But the owner is not done yet. He says, all right, let me tell you. I've been using this as a metaphor. A story I told to communicate my message. Because you people... You are this vineyard. You had great potential. Ideal circumstances. And look at the mess you made out of everything that I've given you. If any one of the crowd there with Isaiah was dozing away, they would probably say, What is this guy saying? Verse 7 concludes like this. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the man of Judah his delightful plans. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but all he heard was a cry of distress. Isaiah here is communicating two messages. First, the people have failed, and society is a mess. God has done everything to expect a society that reflects the values of justice and righteousness. But behold, all Isaiah hears are the cries of people in distress. He looked for justice and only finds injustice. The second thing that Isaiah is communicating is that God will let these people deal with the consequences of their own behavior. He will withdraw, will no longer intervene. They're not willing to listen. They need to learn it the hard way. When we place this message in the context of the Old Testament, then we see that Isaiah is communicating the bankruptcy of the covenant. God had liberated his people out of the suppression of Egypt, led them to the Sinai. The people committed to build a society that exhibits the values that God had exhibited in the exodus out of Egypt. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, a society with justice. God had miraculously brought them into the land, had liberated them from their enemies, blessed the nation under the rule of David. But then things started to deteriorate. And now the situation that Isaiah faces is complete disorder. It's a mess. There is a society full of injustice. Moral decline. Religion had become a formality. And the existence of the nation was in peril. Life was a mess at all levels. If you were to continue reading in chapter 5, you get the picture of what Isaiah was facing. Abuse of power, the indulgence of the wealthy, unbelief in God's providence and God's actions, distortion of the truth, excessive drinking, bribery and injustice. That's the world in which Isaiah lived. And the message of God that he's communicating is... God is letting the mess continue. Let things get further out of control. Now we may think, as we stress God is a loving God, and God loves us and takes care of us, we may think this is rather cruel. We may even think, well, here again we go, Old Testament theology. We may even think, well, God is a bit overreacting. We need to rest this for now. We'll come back to that in our second lecture. But I would like to, if you're thinking about well, the Old Testament, I'd like to turn to the New Testament. Because Jesus picks up on this story of the vineyard. He tells this same story in the book of Matthew. He gives it a little twist, 
by focusing on the tenants who refused to give the harvest best the harvest back to the the owner. They killed the servants, and then the owner finally sends his son, and they even kill him. This story is rather safe to listen to because it's clear that Jesus is talking about the people of Israel who do not recognize the rights of God. The kingdom, he says, will be taken away from them and given to other people. And we may think, yeah, well, that's the church. So praise be to God. But there is another occasion where Jesus revert to the vineyard of Isaiah. There he says, My father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. These branches are thrown away as a branch. They dry up, they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. I left out a few words, but you probably recognize this is from John chapter 15. What Jesus is communicating is exactly the same as Isaiah. It's about bearing fruit, producing good grapes. And the emphasis is also the same as with Isaiah. What will God do when there is no fruit? In Isaiah, he will just leave it. In the the story that Jesus tells, he says he will cut them and throw them away in the fire. These are words not directed to Israel, but directed to the disciples, directed to us. Apparently, the problem of bearing fruit continues to be a concern, not just in the Old Testament for Israel, but also for the church in the New Testament. And God's approach has not changed. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But there is a significant difference. A difference that I've left out so far. Because Jesus begins saying, I am divine. And you are the branches. He who abides in me and I him in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. God has not changed his expectations. He is still expecting good fruit. But God has done something new beyond just creating the best possible circumstances as in Isaiah 5. What God has done, the new thing of God, is Jesus, divine, who produces the resources for the branches to bring good fruit. Comparing the metaphor of Jesus with with the metaphor of Isaiah, we see a reduction. Isaiah talks about the entire vineyard, the complete plant. Jesus says, I am the vine. It's the stem and the branches growing out of that stem, producing the fruit. That's 
what the church is. That's the disciples. What Jesus communicates, it's the new covenant. Jesus is the source of growth. And he's encouraging his disciples to stay closely connected to him, to abide in him as he is abiding in us. We all know what a good connection means. In our Wi-Fi world, we all want to be well connected. As I travel, I always look for, where's the Wi-Fi? I always look for the free Wi-Fi. Having a slow connection or a weak signal limits what we can do on the Internet. The faster the connection the better the results. The closer the connection to Jesus, the more fruit. The issue here is a spirituality of remaining in Him or being in Christ, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. It's the condition for producing good fruit. If we bring things together we've explored so far, we started out talking about the means and the ends and the end of holiness. Using the metaphors of our biblical passages that we've explored, we can say that the means are remaining in Christ, remaining in the vine, or the experience of God's holiness like Isaiah. A lot of times in our holiness tradition, because we stress this so much, these means are communicated as the end. Because then we have fulfilled our concern as a holiness church, because that's who we are. So we need to proclaim holiness. We need to make that the people experience holiness and when they experience holiness when they testify of holiness we say mission accomplished but then we stop in verse 7 of Isaiah 6 it's only the means the end is that we hear more clearly the voice of God who says to us Who will I send? It's God who is calling his people for a purpose in creation. It's God who is calling his people for a mission, to participate in a mission that he has started long before. Or to use the words of Jesus, the end is that we bear fruit (coughs) we've also dealt with God's judgment and that's for us a tough one we don't like judgment and I think we've shied away from all these passages about judgment far too long and we've closed our eyes for these passages and we do not realize that we're getting into serious trouble ourselves as well. 
What do we need to do with these warnings that were clear in the Old Testament, but also the warnings of Jesus about not producing fruit? Something that I've struggled with for many years. And allow me to share my European perspective of doing ministry in a church in Europe overall that has been on the decline for the last 150 years. In most countries, just to give you the idea, in most European countries, church attendance, regular church attendance, is less than 10%. And for a lot of countries, 10% is still far too high. And we always tend to say, well, it's the secularization. We blame developments in our culture We may blame modernity, we may blame the enlightenment, consumerism. We we have a lot of things to blame and we say, these are tough times. But what, what if we place this development of decline in the context of Isaiah's song of the vineyard and Jesus' words about the vine? Then all of a sudden the whole focus changes. Because then the real problem is not somewhere out there, it's something internal. Maybe we need to say, as a church in general, we have not been producing fruit. We've not been abiding in Jesus Christ. Shouldn't we blame society for that? Didn't God tell us what would happen if we were not producing fruit? I think any talk about holiness needs to begin with the acknowledgement that we have made a mess. And I'm not talking here about a personal, individualistic way of acknowledging that. Because when we go into that track, which I think we've done far too often, then we may still congratulate ourselves. Well, I'm still better off than a lot of the other people. Or our church is the exception to whatever. We always start comparing. Isaiah does not do that. Isaiah identifies with the people. And I think we need to start with such an identification. We, the people, we, the people of the earth, we, the believers of the Western Church, we, the members of the Church of the Nazarene, or whatever your church is, we have made a mess. We have messed up, period. We are not producing the fruit that God expected. I think without this confession, we make a wrong start. This was the starting point of Isaiah, where he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and live among the people of unclean lips. He identifies with the mess he sees in society. Make it a little bit more specific. I think that the Western Church, 
focusing more on the Western church than the church globally. The Western church, or you may even think, well, it's more true for Europe than the United States. That's fine. Next week I return back to Europe, and that's my context. The Western church needs to confess that we have lost the spirituality of remaining in him that Jesus talked about. When I look at my own denomination and I see all the initiatives that have been produced and that have been promoted through all the years, the focus on evangelism, on discipleship and church planting, it's a lot of activity, a lot of programs, and we've made a business out of it with statistics, with PR, with seminars. It's a product we're trying to sell. But it's all about doing. And we forget that the doing comes out of the being. The producing of the fruit needs to come out of the remaining in Him. And I see that because of the influence of our culture, we've lost the spirituality that we see reflected in the saints of the past. I think the majority of the people in our churches have no clue what these words of Jesus really mean. And we may say, well, there is, isn't there a lot of books on spiritual formation on the market? I think yes. But most of it is fast food spirituality. It's spiritual consumerism that remains superficial but does not go deep. And that's why it's not producing the fruit that God is expecting of us. When we talk about holiness in a context of realization that we have messed up. We need to understand that this is how Scripture is reading us. When we do not produce the fruit, this is what will happen. And we look at the state of the church in the Western world and we see, yes, it is happening. And we need to begin with this realization. We need to begin with this confession. I think our problem as Westerners is that we have a hard time admitting. We're still trying to get out of that with triumphalistic language, with motivational speeches. Well, if we just try a little bit more, if we just pray a little bit more, then we'll get out of here. But it's time for confession. It's time that we become serious about confessing the mess that we have created. Globally as a world, with our people, you know, you think of all the, the issues that we face, but also the evangelical churches, the holiness churches, we have made a mess. And with this confession, we didn't need to return to Isaiah 6 to see how this encounter with God continues. But that's something that needs to wait till Friday. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we, we sometimes hear your voice and it makes us uncomfortable. We tend to close our eyes for the chaos and the mess that is all around us. And sometimes even the mess in our own lives, the chaos in our own thinking, in our own heart. And Father, as we want to be serious about holiness, we want to start confessing that we live among people who messed up, who have messed up and who are messed up. And we confess that we are part of them. And Father, we pray, may we experience the forgiveness so that it enables us to listen more carefully what you have to say to us for the sake of our world, for the sake of all the people. Be with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. You're dismissed.